Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Matthew 28, 1-10. Well, good evening, Christ Church. It's good to see you guys, and it really is a good evening because we really are celebrating the anniversary of when King Jesus rose from the dead. And the weight of this event, it really can't be understated. Like, this changed the whole world. We sit in this room tonight because of a man rising from the dead 2,000 years ago. It's simply, this world would not remain the same. When Jesus rose from the dead, a group of uneducated, poor men and women started a movement that would not be stopped. They told their, their testimony of who Jesus was and what he did. More believed. They went to synagogues and Jewish gatherings and preached. More believed. 
When they started to become persecuted, they went to the streets, they went to the neighboring cities and cultures, more believed. When the Roman emperor Nero saw the rise of Christianity, he began to kill and persecute them with animals and torture. Guess what, church? More believed. And when Constantine converted to Christianity and made the entire Roman state religion Christianity, more believed. This snowball has become an avalanche. There are Christians all over this world and it's not slowing down anytime soon. So here's the question, how? How could these uneducated poor men and women start a movement that could change the course of human history? What was it that they saw, that they experienced, that gave them something to die for? Well, we know. Our text has told us. It's the resurrection. The resurrection has fundamentally changed us because when you believe in Jesus and you love this king, the one who is resurrected, death and suffering, they simply become momentary, falling into the background of what truly lies before us. And so we see that this weekend, the resurrection, the thing that we celebrate, it's, it's not a day that is sentimental. It's not just shock and awe. This day is transforming joy. That's what our text shows us. And so that's where we're gonna be going tonight. If you take notes, if you're in your Bible, we'll be in Matthew 28, and we're gonna look at these three things. This day is not just sentimental. It is not just shock and awe. This day is transforming joy. So let's look, let's see how. This day is not just sentimental. And you can see that pretty clearly in verse one. Look at what it says. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. You see, the women went to go look at a tomb because there was death. They were grieving. And this would forever become an event for their life. This moment that they would look back on and remember these special things that happen, whether they are hard or joyful. And we have these things dispersed throughout our life, these events that we remember, birthday parties being the ones that probably everybody celebrates every single year all over the whole world. They happen all the time. In fact, have you guys ever been to a little kid's birthday party? I'll tell you right now, it's one of my least favorite things in the entire world, okay? I'll tell you why. First off, it's because when you come to a little kid's birthday party, there's all these people. It's like worlds collide, right? They converge. And so there's people from church and there's people from school and there's people from work and there's grandpas and there's aunts and there's uncles. And you don't know who most of those people are. But nonetheless, these kids go off to play and you end up having to talk to all these strangers for a long time. And that's the second reason that I don't like birth these kids' birthday parties. It's like these kids, they end up playing for so long and you run out of small talk. And there's not like juice boxes. There's not like gift baggies for adults. And so you're like, okay, what do I do now? Finally, after this long, awkward phase happens, they call all the kids to come in and now they are ready to sing. The one thing that nobody wants to do, except for that one guy who harmonizes that everyone's like, dude, come on, right? They come in, they sing this song and it's pretty much empty of any lyrical content, meaningful lyrical content, right? But you sing this song and then the moment comes that everyone has actually been waiting for the cake. They bring the cake in, the kid blows out the candles and everyone is happy and it's satisfied. And it's kind of appropriate that this moment would, would actually come before the worst moment of a kid birthday party, which is when they open the gifts. Here's why this is the worst part. Because when they start to open the gifts, first off, it is like torture to every other single kid in this room watching this kid get to open all these gifts. That's the first reason. The other reason is because this kid is judging in real time whether he likes your gift or not. These kids just, 
actually just enjoy this process though. Somehow, somehow they get through it. You guys are like, okay, note to self, do not invite Elijah to my birthday party. (laughs) I get it. Like the truth is, here's the truth. I recognize that part of the reason I complain is because I just have forgotten the meaning of it. And when we come to an event like this, sometimes we forget of all that has happened. Like a birthday is actually a meaningful thing. This is a person. Everything that we surround in this event is meaningful. The taste, the smells, the people, the gifts. We're coming together to celebrate a soul that has been somehow created into existence that is unique down to the very fingerprints, that they are an image bearer of God and they somehow live and breathe. And everything that we're doing is trying to make sure they know that they are known and they are loved each and every year. That is meaningful, regardless of how I may forget and become selfish about it. But this is what Easter can become for us, rituals and traditions. And we sing songs and we talk and we eat and we get peeps and eggs and we pick out our favorite outfit. But don't forget, the women are a reminder. The only reason that we celebrate resurrection is because there was death that day. Something happened in the tomb. They were mourning. And we know what that's like in our community. Like our community has had to say goodbye to way too many people over the last two months. Our church has had to say goodbye to way too many people over the last two months. And Jesus, his closest friends, they're struggling with what has just happened. And notice what it says. It says they go to the tomb after the Sabbath, after that day. Because for Jews, the Sabbath really was their sacred day. Like this was the thing that was made to interrupt their lives. It was supposed to continue to remind them to have a dependence on God, nothing else. It was to remind them to have an awareness of who God is all the time. It's like literally that feeling when you get, when you go to Chick-fil-A and you get there and you're like, oh my gosh, it's Sunday, it's closed, it's a Sabbath day, it interrupts our lives, right? Because they have become dependent upon God. Like that is part of who they are. They've decided to to withdraw, to to forfeit the profits that they might have, have gained that day because they want to show the world who they actually depend on. It's pretty crazy, to be honest with you. And this is what the entire Jewish people did every single week. They had a Sabbath, a day for the whole community to honor. And if you didn't, you simply weren't part of the covenant community. And unlike our days, they didn't start when the sun came up. They actually started when it went down. And so when Jesus was murdered, they had to get his body off the cross so as to not interrupt their Sabbath. The the Pharisees, the religious, those around them, they needed it gone. This is what John 19, 31 says. It says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. But by the time they got to Jesus, they came to find he was already dead. So they took him off the cross and they put him in a tomb. And this would have simply been despair for everyone who was close to him all of their hopes, all of their aspirations, everything they thought this Messiah would be was gone. And since it was the Sabbath, they had to literally go home and do nothing. Just sit with this fact. Their friend, their king, their teacher was gone. 
They had to consider who they just lost. And that makes this even harder when you think about the fact that so many around them were actually celebrating this death, affirming it, enjoying it. And it's really pretty crazy if you think about even what Jesus has done. Like Jesus let the enemies of God bask in their victory. And he let the enemies and he, well, his friends, I should say, wallow in their despair. Like they were went home in despair. Why? But this really is what suffering feels like most of the time, isn't it? When we ask, where is God? Why is he waiting? But the text actually tells us he's in the tomb. The women went to look at it. Their savior, their Messiah, their friend, he was dead. But the prophet Isaiah tells us why. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, we ask, where is God? Why is he waiting? And Matthew tells us it's because he's dead. And what the world will do is they'll say, look, he's not very good. Like he's not actually that powerful, not so strong, not so wise. He's in a grave, but they don't understand. Jesus was not passively in the tomb. He was actively in it. His death was actively subverting the powers of sin and death. He was dismantling, disarming every power that stood against his people. He was taking the punishment upon himself. He was at work. And because of this, the resurrection means all evil will come to an end. All suffering is being redeemed. The cross and the resurrection, they are guarantees of this fact. You see, they waited in despair. There's truth that waiting can feel like agony. But to God, it is always progress. Progress to restore, progress to redeem, progress to resurrect. And when the disciples felt at their worst, that's actually when God was accomplishing his best. Make no mistake, this day, it's not about peeps and eggs and outfits. These women went to go see a tomb that was supposed to contain the body of a failed Messiah. It didn't. It was empty. He's alive. He rose. Christianity doesn't just remember how Jesus died for us. It remembers how he conquers for us. It's not just sentimental. And it's not just shock and awe either. It's not just shock and awe. If you look at verse two, you can see. It says, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. This is a pretty stunning scene. Like it certainly has some shock and awe, right? (laughs) There is an earthquake, which apparently is associated with this appearance of this angel on some, at some level. Now, most of the time we see the earthquake in scripture. It's actually because God is speaking. The heavy syllables of God's voice, his glory, his power, they fall upon creation. Like when Moses went up onto the mountaintop and he heard God speak and the mountain trembled and every person with him said, hey, we're too afraid for this. We have to leave. Isaiah, when he enters into the throne room and he hears God's voice, listen to what he says in Isaiah 6, verse 4. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Psalm 29 speaks of his strength and his voice. Listen to what it says. 
The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. See, the force of his articulation didn't just create the whole world, it rocks it. So here, when the earth quakes, it's being moved by God's voice once more. And the angel is the one who actually articulates what it is God is saying. He says in verse six, he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The text tells us what this angel looks like. It's this sort of lightning of beam, but it's clothed in white. He moved the stone away and he just, he sits on it like it's nothing. They had done everything they could to make sure this death was done. They put Jesus in a tomb. They put a heavy stone in front of it. They sealed it so that they would know whether somebody was in or out. And they put military on the outside to guard it. And yet here we see this, the seal was no match. The stone was rolled away and the guards were scared to unconsciousness. But what's fascinating is that it was not to let Jesus in. It was to let the women in. It was to help them see what was happening. Jesus had already been resurrected and left his burial clothes behind. But this day isn't just about shock and awe. Like many were surprised, but notice the reactions of those involved. It was the soldiers who became like dead men. And why wouldn't they? You see, every enemy of God, when they see their fate, they simply crumble. They thought Jesus was dead. They thought they had escaped judgment. They thought they had won. For the enemies of God, the resurrection turns into deathly fear. He's alive? This wasn't just impressive. Like there was going to be a reckoning. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I know most of you probably are with the story of Chronicles of Narnia. I quote it all the time because it's like the best. And if you haven't read it yet, you should. I'm kind of ruining a part of it, but hey, it's from the 40s. So y'all just need to read it, okay? There's a world, it's called Narnia but it has been turned into a perpetual winter by an evil witch. And there is one, Aslan, who is a strong and powerful lion. Now, what you need to know is that the witch actually took one of the main characters and, he, and she made him his slave. His name's Edmund. And Aslan recognizes as Edmund's about to face his death that the only way he can save Edmund is by exchanging his own life for Edmund's. And the witch was ready and waiting. She was, wanted this from the very beginning. And so she gladly accepts Aslan's exchange. She takes Aslan and those who are all on her side and they go and they walk with him, they strap him to a stone table and they hit and they spit and they bruise and they scar. And to humiliate this lion, they shave his entire mane and he's met by laughs and jeers and mocking. And finally, the witch approaches the lion and ends his life. And she thinks that she won. They leave him for dead, basking in their victory. And they march on to battle against the rest of Narnia, believing that now it is in their hands. But as the sun comes up and when they are away, the table breaks. Aslan is gone. And the children that were there, they were wondering where he went, where could he have gone? All of a sudden he reveals himself to him. And he takes them and helps free all of those who had been enslaved by the witch. And then they rush toward the battle where the queen is at fighting everyone else. And as soon as Aslan gets there, he stops and he roars. And it says that all Narnia shook. Everyone stops. Everyone knows it's over. 
Aslan immediately jumps on the witch and ends her, and everyone left on her side runs. It's done. When the lion roars, when the king is won, it will leave you in either utter despair and fear or trepidation and joy. That's what he's inviting us to, to not be like soldiers, but to be like those who heard the message and were overjoyed because they loved him. This day is about transforming joy, transforming joy. Look what it says in verse five. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Now it's lost in translation a little bit, but the angel speaking to the women, like it actually is pretty reassuring here. It gives them, it's actually saying like, don't you be afraid. Like, of course it makes sense for the soldiers to, to tumble and fall, but not you. You see the, the assurance There's no rebuke from the angel. There's no like, well, why didn't you just believe Jesus? He said he was gonna do this. There's no like, well, why are you so sad? Like this, it's man, the angel simply reports this, this dead man's alive. He's risen, he's here. You don't need to be afraid. You need to be joyful, overjoyed, fulfilled with it. And I hope you see the biblical connection too. You see, it was in a garden that we were once heard that pronouncement, that curse of death. And now it's in a garden that we hear that pronouncement, the hope of life. And I also hope you see the rationality. The angel doesn't just say, take my word for it. He's gone. Trust me. He says, go in and look. Inspect the tomb. Look at the the clothes. Sometimes when we talk about these things, we think that because these people lived 2,000 years ago, they were more willing to believe in dead people being resurrected. That's incorrect. That's pretty phenomenal, pretty much regardless of who you are. Like these people may not have had iPhones, but they still had the same mental capacity that we had. They built extraordinary architecture. They were able to figure out the calendar way before we we did with our iPhones, right? They had everything at their disposal. In fact, I don't know about you, but Plato and Aristotle were pretty, pretty smart guys and their philosophy still dominates everything that we see today around us. But God still gives them reasons to believe what would be hard to. He tells them, go in, look around, look what you see. And the truth is we have many reasons ourselves. Like if you're really skeptical, you can actually look up N.T. Wright, Gary Habermas. They're two well-known and respected scholars who actually show us that there's exceptional evidence for this. But these women, when they see that with their own eyes, the truth of the matter, the angel says, go, tell the disciples. Listen to what, listen to what uh, it says in verse eight. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Do you see the different dispositions of those in the story thus far? Like the soldiers were stunned from fear. The women were afraid, but they had joy. Why? What's the difference? Like how could warriors be so shaken by these events and the women unfazed? The soldiers were afraid because they realized the truth of the matter, but that they weren't on the right side. 
Like the truth of the resurrection is something, it's something that's so powerful, has come to pass that it has changed everything. Like what are your defenses against something that can't die and is more powerful than you? This is what the soldiers experienced. Nothing mattered. They feared what they had feared had happened. They feared the man in the tomb and they feared the man who had angels at his command. But not the women. They were afraid because of the power, but they were overjoyed because of the person, of who it was. This was their king, their teacher, their friend. And the truth is, even in this room right now, if if we don't fear the resurrection, it's because we don't actually believe it. If there's not some level of us that just makes us apprehensive or taken back by eternity, it's because at some level we don't actually think it's true. And if we sit in this room tonight and we don't have just true joy at some level, it's because we don't truly love him. Like Jesus is going to reveal himself to you at one point or another. So the question is, will you fall like dead men or will you be overtaken by joy? You see, truth in the resurrection will bring fear. It's true, but the love of the one resurrected will bring joy. And so the women ran to tell the disciples, but before they could even get there, they were interrupted by none other than Jesus himself. He simply stops them, gives them a greeting, hello, and they see him and they just fall at his feet. They can't believe it's him. They're touching him. He's physical. He's there with them and they worship him. No doubt remains. Every question answered. Here he is in the flesh. The king who was dead is alive. And again, Jesus doesn't rebuke. He doesn't say, why didn't you believe me? He doesn't say, don't be sad, that's ridiculous. He says, go and tell the disciples what you've seen. Why? So that more would believe. You see, this day is about transforming joy. When you encounter the resurrected one, it will either leave you in total despair or it will totally change you. You will have a joy that makes you soar. You will be able to face anything in this life, suffering, death, loss, whatever it may be, because we have hope. And every momentary affliction at this moment is giving way to an eternal glory that is before us with this King. This is what he's inviting us to. An eternity not to live forever by itself, but to live forever with the author of life himself. There's a story long ago, there's a man named Polycarp. It's a common story, you may have heard it before. Polycarp was one of the first Christians right after the apostles. And he was somebody who was actually mentored by the apostle John. He became a leader in the church. Uh, There was a decree that went out to rid the empire of atheists. Christians were considered atheists because they did not accept the Roman gods. They did not call Caesar Lord. Polycarp was a pretty old man at the time and he was always in prayer. And he heard that they were actually coming for him at that moment. And so he decided to leave. He went to another house and started to pray once more. Eventually he was found out and they came with all their weapons and their brute strength against this frail old man. And they found him praying in the word. And they tried to force him to pledge his allegiance to Caesar, but he wouldn't do it. So they took him and they were going to bring him to the stadium where a crowd would see his demise and they put him in a chariot and then they tried to gently coerce him. Like, 
If you just do this, it'll be over. Just pledge your allegiance to Caesar and it will be done. And when he refused, they started to treat him harshly and physically and, and mock him. And they took him into the stadium before the roaring crowd and the rulers. And they said, have some respect for yourself. Swear your allegiance to Caesar. But he said, 86 years have I served him and he has never done me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The ruler said, I have wild beasts. They will devour you if you do not call Caesar Lord. But he said, I, I cannot do it. I will not call him this and I will not turn to evil. The ruler said, I have fire that will consume you. And he said, it will only consume, consume momentarily. But the fire that I know of is eternal. I cannot do this. And they seized the old man and put him in the fire. They threw him in and it didn't work. And the whole crowd was just confused, struck, astonished at what they were seeing when this man in a fire was not being harmed. And one of those military men took a dagger and he ended Polycarp's life in that moment. And you know what happened, church? More believed. This is how this story has entered our midst. This is why we sit in this room. This is why we sit regardless of how many years have transpired. Because when people experience Jesus, they no longer have fear, but joy. Because despite the persecution, the mocking, the harm, they were going to shout this message at the top of their lungs. Jesus was dead, but he's alive. He's risen and he's making us alive too. I can tell you story after story of those who have recognized that their life could have purpose and meaning even at the threat of death. The disciples realized it themselves. Most of them died for this message because when you see the king, you will either have fear because you are wrong or joy because he's alive. You see, the resurrection reveals more than that we will live forever, but reveals who we will live forever with and he's good. This day is not just sentimental. This day is not just shock and awe. This day is transforming joy and his command to the women and the disciples is the same one that we receive. Go tell everyone and worship him. Would you stand and sing? Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.